if you did get one of these Bibles, you can turn to page 961. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hopefully a familiar passage. Hopefully I'll say a few things you haven't thought about before. Um, And I will not be able to say everything. Just singing some of these songs, different aspects of what was said and how that relates to the gospel. It's like, oh, I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) It's like, so we can't say everything, but we will say a few things about what is the gospel. Let me just read from this portion I get in the right book of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first eight verses. Hear now God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is the word of God. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we come before you now and long to hear your voice. Lord, I confess my need for you and pray that your spirit would be upon me and that these, your people, would hear you speaking, not me. Teach us the wonder of what you've done for us in Christ. May it fill our hearts with joy that you are our God, the God of all grace. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, while I'm sure there are some of you um, who are still in denial, the rest of us realize we're getting older. And from time to time, not all the time, but from time to time, we need occasional reminders Reminders concern things we already know or should know, at least, but for whatever reason, we've forgotten them. Or sometimes reminders concern things which should be important to us, but which have lost their significance, and so we need to be reminded again, this is important. And today, there's all kinds of things. I just was looking as I prepared the sermon, and there's all kinds of apps you can get on your phone that will remind you of this, that, and the other thing, you know. There's one that's called Reminder. Um, so, but if you have that, you know, that's fine. Some of us like those kind of things. There's other ways to remind. 
people can remind us of various things. Sometimes just seeing someone reminds us of something that we should have done or, ooh, you know. And reminding people of something can be merely informative. You know, just reminding somebody, hey, remember you're supposed to do that. Or remember that's the date that's coming up that we need to to talk or whatever. But then also it can be somewhat awkward when they've forgotten something important or something which they most definitely should know but simply choose not to think about. And it's sort of that that Paul's dealing with here. He's reminding these Corinthians about the gospel. And some of the language that he uses, it's like, like as though they've never heard the gospel before, and yet at the same time he says, you've received it, you stand in it, and you're being saved by it. So these are Christians, but they need to be reminded of the gospel. And that's true of each one of us. We know it, or at least we should, but we need to be reminded again and again and again and be amazed about the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians, the gospel is something which you talk about quite often, and rightly so. We insist on the preaching of the gospel in our congregation, in evangelism, and in world missions. We point out the power, that it's the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. We say that um, in order to be saved, a person must believe the gospel. But what is the gospel? We point out the term gospel means good news. But what is the good news of the gospel? How is the, how is the gospel good news? How is it good news in those crushing realities of life? How is the gospel good news in everyday life? Is it all about you, your well-being, your prosperity, your happiness, your forgiveness, that you'll have your sins forgiven and finally go to heaven? So we usually think about when we think about the gospel, it's me-centered what I get out of it. But I want you to hear what Paul has to say here about what the gospel is. The wonder of the gospel is that it's not about us. Thanks be to God. But it's about Jesus Christ and what he has done. It's a revelation of who he is and what he's like. It's a message about the grace of God revealed in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the power of God to salvation. Not what I benefit from. That. That's not the same as the gospel itself. We do receive benefits, but the gospel is what Christ has already accomplished. It's good news. You look at the context of this passage, and hopefully you're familiar with a little bit about the history of the church in Corinth. Talk about a problematic congregation, moral and ethical problems within the church, incest perhaps, questions about marriage and divorce, questions about eating food sacrificed to idols, worship was a problem, misuse and misunderstanding of spiritual gifts was rampant, people were getting drunk at the Lord's table and the poor were going home hungry. What a mess. 
But of all the things that Paul talks about in this letter and of all the things he could have talked about, in this chapter he's saying, I want to remind you about the gospel. He wants to center them again, back to the gospel. And we need that, each one of us. And as a congregation, we need that. While chapter 15 is well known as an explanation of the implications of the resurrection, he begins all of that by talking about what is the gospel. The resurrection is tied inseparably with the gospel. The gospel is, for Paul here, of primary importance, especially for a congregation as mixed up and diffuse as the one in Corinth, following various teachings, drifting away from this central reality of the gospel. And so what Paul does here is he reminds them. He's reminding them about the gospel. He's saying, I want you to just pause with all your issues, and let's just think about the gospel here. Let's get back to the basics and think about the gospel. And this is not merely just a jog of memory. He's also saying that the gospel is something which pertains to and is of primary importance for believers. This is not just one more thing that we need to talk about and think about. This is it. This is of first importance for the church, for us. The gospel is that upon which the salvation of the Corinthians and our salvation depends something which they and we have received in which we stand and by which we're being saved. The way Paul phrases it here, it's almost as though the Corinthians had never heard the gospel. And yet from what's stated, they had received it. They stand in it. They're being saved by it. So what we see here is the gospel is not just when you go out and do evangelism to the lost, the pagans. Paul is saying to believers, you need the gospel. That's of first importance for you. And so he's reminding them of it. It's a public declaration. It's a word that's used in various places of the shepherd's announcement by the angels to them. They make known. That's what Paul's doing. He's making known the gospel to the Corinthians. So for Paul, the point of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, is to serve as a reminder of the gospel that he had preached to the church in Corinth. I may be showing my age, but we used to have post-it notes. I don't know if they even still have those things. But that's what this is like. It's like a little post-it note on your computer screen. Remember the gospel. <laughs> we ought to do that. We ought to remind each other of the treasure that is ours in the gospel. It should fill our hearts. We should long to get together to, to talk about the gospel with one another. Because that's what Paul's doing here. So by way of summary of this passage, and we'll break it down as we move through, We can say that the gospel is a message in accordance with the scriptures about Jesus, which is to be received by faith and which is to impact every aspect of our lives. So we'll look at what the message is all about, 
about accordance to Scripture. Secondly, thirdly, about Jesus. Fourthly, about that it's received by faith. And fifthly, that it's lived. So first of all, the gospel is a message. I'm sure you've heard before the word gospel means good news. Okay? So what's that mean? It means good announcement, a good message. It is good news that makes one happy, makes one joyful. And in a general sense, not applied to the message of the gospel particularly, but in a general sense, it's used in two different ways, particularly in the Old Testament. When a battle was won, that's what the announcement was. The war's over. This is good news. Or the second way is when a child was born. That was good news that was related. And that just ties in with what Paul's going to say about the gospel here. The war is over. Because Jesus has won. He's triumphed over death. And he is the child that has been born. So it's a message. It's a message that is related in various different ways. And it's significant to see how the gospel is talked about in the New Testament. In various places, in Mark 1.14, Romans 1.1, 1, 1, 15.16... Acts 20, verse 22, or 24, it's called the gospel of God or the grace of God. It underlines that the gospel is completely God-centered. It's his gospel. It's about him, what his son has done. Full stop. Remember that, okay? Point is that the gospel is a message about the salvation obtained by what Christ has done. No more, no less. And Paul says that he preached this gospel to them. And in a way, Paul repeats himself here in verse 1, where he speaks of the gospel I preached to you. The word that he uses here for preach has the same root as the word gospel. So he's saying, I gospeled you with the gospel. (laughs) We wouldn't do that. And so it's a good translation that he preached the gospel, but it's the same word. And there's various words used in the New Testament which are rightly translated as preached. But when you hear the word preached, don't think of a church service with all people nicely sitting in rows and listening to a boring sermon. <laughs> there's two words in, 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 in the main that are used for preach. The first is of an official herald who would go before an official saying, the official's coming, the king is coming, make ready. Not something that's just kind of like, oh yeah, whatever, I'm sharing this news with you. No, the king is coming. And in the ancient Near East, that was a big deal. And that message was preached, and that word is tied to the gospel. In Mark 13, 10, it says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, And then later in the book of Mark, in chapter 16, verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Preaching the gospel is not just sharing your faith. That's not the gospel. Preaching the gospel is being a herald of what Christ has done and saying the king has come. But there's another word that's used, the word that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 15, 
it's got the same word as the base as for the gospel. It's good news. It's announcing good news. And it's used in conjunction with the gospel. And here in this passage, as we've seen, but in several other places as well. So there's this redundancy. It's saying the good news about the good news. The point here is that the gospel is a message which is communicated. It's not deeds. It's not lifestyle. It's a message that's to be spoken, to be communicated. There's a famous statement attributed to Francis of Assisi in which he's supposed to have said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Frankly, that's complete rubbish. If you understand the New Testament, you can't preach the gospel without words. It's telling people who Jesus is, what he's done. It's not just saying, look at my life and I hope you get the message. It's clearly, officially telling people as his representative, what Christ has done. The gospel is good news of what Jesus has already accomplished, and that's to be announced to the people in all the nations of the globe. Secondly, the gospel is according to Scripture. Paul repeats this twice here to underline how important the Scriptures are for the gospel. The word that he uses here for in accordance means in conformity with or in fulfillment with. The gospel is not something that we make up as we go along. It's not something we can kind of be creative with. The scripture has to lie at the basis of the gospel that we present. It must be according to the scripture. The point here is that it's not fables or myths It's not my personal testimony. But every detail is according to the written word of God as both God's own self-revelation as well as his revelation of his plan of redemption and restoration which centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see examples of this in the New Testament in Acts chapter 8. Philip preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian, you know the story, the Ethiopian eunuch's in the chariot, and he's reading from Isaiah, my favorite book in the Bible. And he's reading from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And Philip says, do you understand that? The eunuch says, of course not. And we're told there in Acts that Philip preached the gospel from Isaiah. He uses Isaiah to talk about the gospel. It's according to the scriptures. Or in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul encourages young Timothy that all scripture, that is the Old Testament at that time, was breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Even Jesus himself makes the point of the scriptures are at the core of the gospel. In Luke 24, two disciples after the resurrection, but they don't know yet, or they're not sure, and they're walking on the road to Emmaus, and and Jesus comes alongside. 
And listen to what Jesus says to them in Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus was saying to them, all the Bible is about me. The whole Old Testament. You need that to understand the gospel. Or a little bit further in the same chapter, we hear him again. He said to them in verse 44 and following, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Imagine being there and having Jesus open the scriptures to you that it all points to him. And the three points, the the three divisions that he talks about there are the three divisions of the Old Testament canon in Hebrew. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament is a big arrow pointing to me. So it's not surprising then that Paul says these things in the gospel are according to scripture. I've heard gospel presentations when scripture wasn't even referred to obliquely. How can that be? The scriptures point to Christ, and not just in some general way, saying, oh, the Messiah is going to come. But Jesus says the scriptures say that he has to suffer and die and rise on the third day. Remember that when we see what Paul says is the content of the gospel. The point here is that every detail of Christ's life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Just go through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and see how often the word fulfill occurs, especially in connection with Scripture. Of the 54 times the word fulfill is used, 35 of them have to do with the fulfillment of Old Testament Scriptures in the life of Christ. The writers of the New Testament are saying these things are happening because it's in the Word. The gospel is scripture-based. And they wanted people to know that. You think about going all the way back to Genesis. Christ's heel would be crushed by the seed of the serpent, but he would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Think of the marvelous servant songs in Isaiah that speak of Christ bearing the sins of his people. You think of all of the blood sacrifices, all saying there's got to come another sacrifice. And Jesus is that sacrifice. The gospel is according to Scripture. All of these things are not by accident. They were all part of God's plan of restoration and redemption from the very beginning. And as a result, the gospel is not dependent on our own emotions or knowledge or performance or experience, but on Christ's perfect fulfillment of the predetermined plan of redemption and restoration of all that was lost in the fall and to sin. And as God has revealed that plan in Scripture, we have to go into Scripture and say, all that Jesus has done is a fulfillment of that. 
That's the gospel. That's the good news. The one who has come has come in fulfillment of all the scriptures. Scripture is absolutely essential in not only our understanding of the gospel, but our presenting of the gospel to others. Again, just look at the New Testament and see how often when the gospel is being presented, the authors cite the scriptures of the Old Testament. What an encouragement that is for us to do the same. Fill your minds with scripture so that when you have the opportunity, that's what comes out. You can share the scriptures. The gospel is also not not only a message according to scripture, but thirdly, it's about Jesus. Paul highlights here four things about Jesus which are supreme of supreme importance and which constitute the content of the gospel. Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearance to various witnesses. In a very real sense, Jesus is the gospel. The good news, it's all about Jesus. Not about us, not about what we do or don't do, not about how we feel, what we know, even about our faith. It's about the objective, historical, finished work of Christ, what he has already accomplished. That's why it's good news. We don't have to be in doubt about it. It's finished. He's done it. And Paul uses the name Christ here in his description of the gospel. And the word Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's not Jesus and then his dad was was Christ. No. The word Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed for their jobs, their function. It's a title. It's saying he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And we don't have time to develop it, but in the New Testament, it's very interesting to see how often this idea of Jesus being the Christ is tied to him being the Son of God. The language that Paul is using here about the Christ is not about a mate or a buddy. I want want to introduce you to my, my buddy, Jesus. This is the Christ, the exalted one, the one who rose from the dead. Now he can be called Christ, the Messiah. He's God's own son. It's about him. That's what the gospel is about. That's why it's good news. If it was about me and what I've struggled with in my faith, you'd get all depressed. (laughs) But it's about him who has overcome death and is now seated at God's right hand, the Christ. Paul says this is of first importance. These four elements are absolutely essential. In other words, these four elements are what make the gospel the good news. Without them, it's not the gospel. Remember that. When you're talking to somebody about the gospel, remember these four things. This is what the gospel is. It may be more, but it's this at least. First of all, he died for our sins. Jesus' death is the core of the gospel. He did not come to merely provide us 
with some good teaching or to do some spectacular miracles or to be a good moral example for us to follow. Jesus came to die. That's the gospel. Thanks be to God. If he didn't come to die, I'd be dead in my sin. That's why this is the gospel. That's why the gospel has to start there. But why did he have to come to die? Could not an all-powerful creator who spoke all things into existence simply speak a word of power and remove all sin from the world? Why did the father have to send his only son to die? Well, to understand that, you have to go back, sorry, to the Old Testament. (laughs) You have to go back to Genesis. God created everything, and it was good. Adam and Eve fellowshiped with the Father every day in the cool of the day. Talk about mind-blowing. No fear, no anxiety. The Creator God wants to fellowship with His creatures, and they do so. But you know the story. Then came sin. They fall. And God says, if you touch, if you eat of the tree, the day you eat of that, you'll die. That's the penalty for sin. Because God is holy. But God didn't say, oh, you've eaten the tree, done. We're done. He immediately sets in, in motion this plan of redemption. says, but there's going to be a seed of the woman come who will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The gospel's right there in Genesis 3.15. This plan of redemption starts to unfold. But death was the penalty for sin. Mankind sinned, so death had to come. The wage of sin is death, Paul tells us. That's why Jesus had to come and die. God couldn't just say, Ugh, don't worry about it. A little sin, no big deal. Or he couldn't just go, well, I'm powerful, no, no more sin. No. He's righteous. He's holy. To remain that, he had to send his son to take the place, to bear the penalty, to die in the place of his people. So Christ has to come and die for his people. The heart of the gospel is the substitutionary death of Christ for the sins of his people. The fact that Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. The penalty that our sin deserved, Jesus took. That's the gospel. Not that I feel good about that. That's not the gospel. I may feel good about that. I hope I feel good about that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for my sin. That's the good news. And again, there's all kinds of ways that this is spoken of in the New Testament. But we're never going to view the gospel as good news, unless and until we see the depth of our sin, the impossibility of forgiveness from sin or overcoming our sin through what we do. We play with sin. We think, I got this. We're just fooling ourselves. Sin demands death. We all deserve to die because of our sin. And we can't change that. There's nothing I can do that's going to overcome sin in my life. There's no amount of sorrow or whatever that I can do that's going to atone for my sin. 
Only the death of Christ would do that. That's why that's where the gospel must start. It's the core of the gospel. Without the death of Christ, the gospel is not really good news. We need to talk about sin and the death of Christ for our sin. It simply cannot be avoided just because it might offend some people today. In fact, one time Sinclair said that when he was studying, one of the professors said he has to post a notice if he talks about the penal substitutionary death of Christ because that might offend people. That's the core of the gospel. Let it be an offense because that's the only way our sin can be atoned for. His death was on our behalf for our sins. It was what our sins deserved and demanded. Yet that is the wonder of the gospel. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin and died for it so that we can have eternal life through faith in him. Oh, thanks be to God for the riches of his grace. Secondly, the content of the gospel is that Jesus was buried. This is the only place in the New Testament that talks about the burial of Christ. The gospels talk about Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body, taking it down, preparing it, putting it in his tomb, the stone being rolled over the, the entrance, and that even the scribes and Pharisees were saying, you've got to post a guard there because Jesus said he's going to rise in three days, and so we, won't, we don't want that to be happening. But it's all about a tomb. The word burial is not used. But here Paul talks about this as a first importance in the gospel. Why is that? Why is it important that we talk about the burial of Jesus? I think it's because it's to show that Jesus didn't just swoon or lapse into unconsciousness on the cross. They take him down and he kind of woke up later when he got in the cool of the tomb. It's not that at all. His burial is proof positive that he was actually dead. If he had not died... The penalty for our sin would not have been paid, nor would his resurrection be the triumph over sin and death that it is. So the fact that Jesus was buried is essential to the gospel. He was not only crucified, but he was buried. Thirdly, he was raised on the third day. And here Paul's actually talking about two different things. First and foremost, he's talking about Jesus being raised from the dead, but also that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And we'll look at these two in reverse order. Why is it important that Paul talks about the third day here? Why is that essential for the gospel? Why not just say, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, full stop, done. Paul makes a point here that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. I didn't do that. So why is it important? Why is this emphasized in the retelling of the gospel throughout the New Testament? It's not just Paul, this one-off place here. Jesus himself draws attention to the fact that through his own teachings, he makes it very clear in Matthew 12, 40, that just as Jonah had been in the belly of the fish for three days, he, the son of God, or son of man, would be in in three days in the grave. He'd already said that. And as Jesus draws closer to the time of his death, 
he pulls the disciples aside again and again and says, you know, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going there to die. The Son of Man's going to be handed over. They're going to crucify me. Matthew 20, verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. It's important because Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. So that's part of the gospel. When he rose on the third day, people can see he does what he says he's going to do. He rose again. When the Jews asked for a sign from Jesus that he was sent by God, he told them, you tear down this temple in three days, I'll build it up. Now he was talking about his body and his death and resurrection. They mocked him. Then as he hung on the cross, those going by said, oh, yeah, you said you're going to build up the temple in three days. Why don't you just come down from the cross and do that just now? And they mocked him. And the Pharisees took precautions, as I said, to guard the tomb because they were afraid Jesus might actually do what he said, which he did. The guard was of no avail. And the women arrive at the tomb on the first day of the week, three days after Jesus' death, and they didn't find the body. Listen to what the angels tell them. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They remember what Jesus had said. His resurrection on the third day is proof positive that he does what he says. The demonstration of the fulfillment of Jesus' own teaching as well as that of the Old Testament. And now when we turn our attention to the fact that Christ rose from the dead, generally we think of this as some spectacular miracle, and it's like, wow, kind of, that's it. But it's interesting, the language of the New Testament is that Jesus is the first fruits of them that were dead. The picture that's portrayed for us is that's just the beginning. See, he's the anointed one. The Messiah, he's come to bring restoration. Death lay over all of humanity. But here is one who has risen from the dead. And with that is a demonstration that the restoration has begun. It should just blow our minds. Death no longer is the victor. Jesus is risen. That's the gospel. The restoration has come. How do we know? Jesus didn't rot in the grave, but he rose from the dead. In the New Testament, particularly the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, expresses this reality in terms of Jesus being this first fruits. And we need to see the resurrection not merely in terms of personal, individualistic way or of a one-off miracle, but as the beginning of what had long been promised 
a return to the garden and the tree of life, restored fellowship with the Creator. Adam and Eve enjoyed that, but then the way was blocked. Jesus is now risen. The gospel is a message about Jesus, the risen one, the one who is alive and seated at God's right hand. This is confirmed throughout the New Testament. Time and time again, it's that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead. You don't find the writers in the New Testament say, well, we're not quite sure, or that's really not important. They make a point of that. Why? Because the restoration has come. And we know it because Jesus has risen from the dead. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is risen from the dead as the resurrection and the life. That we're no longer slaves to sin and death. That times of refreshing, as are spoken of in Acts 3.20, and the restoration of all things has indeed begun with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So, he died for our sins. He was buried. He's risen from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And lastly, he appears to various official witnesses. The word appear just means see with the eyes. And Paul repeats the term in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 to show the validity of this fact. Jesus was not a ghost He was touched, he ate, he was seen by various witnesses. And while Paul doesn't mention all of the appearances of Christ, the women at the tomb, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and so forth, he does mention specific names and lists six specific individuals or groups who physically saw the risen Christ. First is Cephas, or Peter, leader in the church, There's no other reference to Jesus appearing personally to him, but Peter was with the disciples when Christ appeared at various times. Secondly, the twelve. Can't help but think this must have been the time after Judas had been replaced by Matthias in Acts 1. Perhaps it was the time after Jesus had met the two on the road to Emmaus. They go back into the city and say, we've seen the Savior. He's alive. And then Jesus appears in their midst. And he says to them, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. These are not people that just kind of wanted to see Jesus, and so they saw him. You can think also in in John 20, where Thomas goes, No, you guys can believe it all you want. I'm not going there. Not unless I can touch him. Not unless I can put my hands in the wounds. So Jesus comes and says, here, Thomas, touch me. I'm real. Can you imagine? He gives them peace. And he wants them to believe. So he shows himself. He lets them touch. He eats with them. Paul also says he appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still alive, even though some had fallen asleep. He also mentions James. And again, there's no specific mention of Jesus appearing to James individually, but with the other apostles. Then also he mentions all the apostles. You can think of the Sea of Galilee appearance in John 21, where they're out fishing. They're like, oh yeah, whatever, he's done. And they're out fishing, and they 
come ashore, and there's this guy there. He's got a fire going. He said, can you have some fish? Let's eat. And they realize it's Christ. And then the Apostle Paul, he says to me, the least of all, because he persecuted the church, but Jesus appears to him. But why are there these appearances of the risen Christ? Why is it essential as part of the gospel? I believe the answer is found in Acts 10, verses 36 to 43, where Peter explains the meaning of the Gentile, uh, explains his meeting with the Gentile centurion Cornelius. Remember the whole affair. Peter's going, no, 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 I can't touch a Gentile. I can't go there. And he finally goes, and he's amazed. And listen to what he says. In verse 39 following, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had, who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. These were official witnesses. They could go to a law court and say, we saw him. We were there. We touched him. So what we're saying is true. That's why all of these are listed. That's why it's important for us to talk about that in the gospel. It's not a phantom, a wishful thought. Oh, I'd like Jesus to have been raised. No, these men saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They conversed with him. Oh, thanks be to God that he is indeed the resurrection and the life for all who believe in him. So by way of summary, the contents of the gospel are all about Jesus and what he has done, specifically that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead on the third day, and that he appeared to official witnesses who testified to the reality of his resurrection. But it doesn't end there. The gospel is something that has to be received. It's a message, according to Scripture, about Jesus, but we need to receive it. If I said to you, you just won the lottery, and you go, okay, that's nice. (laughs) It just went away. It wouldn't do you any good. You have to receive that by going to the bank or wherever and finding out, did I indeed win that? And then cash it in. Well, with the gospel, it's good news if we receive it by faith. So the word translated here as receive is not just, oh yeah, I've heard about it, that's nice. It's to accept it and by faith. The gospel is to be received by faith. It involves active, ongoing faith. The word that's used in verse 3 means vain in the sense of not in the sense of that it's used in 1 Corinthians 15 14 of useless, but not without careful thought. So if you've believed, then let's think about this. The point is that the gospel will save the Corinthians and us, us. But it's not automatic, it requires active, ongoing faith. And not some random, half-hearted, superficial one that's a one-off thing. Oh, yeah, I believed in Jesus. (laughs) Done. That's what Paul's talking about. 
It's faith that's ongoing. So what does it mean to receive the gospel by faith? What is faith anyway? We think of faith as something we have to produce, and it's not that. In Scripture, faith is always a response of God's faith to God's faithfulness. We see who God is, that he always does what he says, always. And we go, okay, I can trust that guy. That's what faith is. We don't work it up. It's a response. So where do we see the faithfulness of God? You can look at the whole Old Testament and all the history of his dealings, but most pointedly, look at Jesus. Look at his death and his resurrection. That's shouting to us, God is faithful. Trust him. You can trust him. It's not something we have to work up. We just fall into the arms of our Savior and say, thank you. Faith is not something we work up. Rather, it's a response, a trust, a reliance on who God is. And it's what saves us. The idea conveyed here is that salvation is active and it's ongoing. So the gospel has to be heard. It's a message. and has to be responded to by faith. But it doesn't end there as well. Because lastly, the gospel has to be lived. Paul talks about the Corinthians standing in the gospel. The gospel message is according to Scripture about Jesus, received by faith, but it's something we have to stand in and remain standing there. It has to be ongoing and have an impact on every aspect of our life. The gospel is a message which is lived, an announcement which, is, which shapes every aspect of our lives. We should never think that we have outgrown our need for the gospel. We need the gospel every moment of our lives as believers. Not merely at the time of our conversion. The gospel is not merely for unbelievers, but for believers as well. What does it mean? What's it look like for us to live or to stand in the gospel? Well, as Christians... We're to put the gospel into practice in our lives. It should be the motive for everything that we do. It should be so much in our thoughts and our hearts that it just flows out. It should be the motive for everything. Our entire life should be one continuous response to the gospel. Not to earn our salvation, but to express our thanks to God for the salvation he has given to us. By his grace in Christ. Paul puts it another way in this passage and says we have to hold fast. It's interesting, the word that he uses here is the word from which we get our word catechized. It involves schooling, practice, application of the gospel to every aspect of our lives. Faith in the gospel is not a one-off thing. Where we believe one time, way back then, It's an ongoing way of life which requires us to hold fast to the gospel, to never let it go, to never let it out of our minds, to never let anything else be the motivation or priority in our lives, constantly reminding ourselves and one another of the wonder of the gospel and how it applies to every thought and word and deed, our relationships, our priorities, our values. What does that have to do with the gospel? should be our question. Always.
So in closing, just a few things by way of application. First of all, what the gospel is not. It's not a message about a mate or a buddy. It's not sharing people about, I want to tell you about my friend, Jesus. Hopefully he is your friend. But he's the risen Christ, the Son of God. It's not either a purely intellectual concept or a theological discourse. And you can say, thanks be to God. (laughs) It's not that. Nor is it a particular experience, either an emotion, on an emotional level or a physical level. That is, it's not going forward in some service or some other conversion experience or baptism with the Holy Spirit, however you understand that. These are not the gospel. It's not a miracle or a display of power by a person. It's certainly not the prosperity gospel. If you just believe, you'll have health and wealth forever. See how man-centered that is? Where's where's Christ in that? Where's the finished work of Christ? Nor is the gospel a call to faith and repentance or to make a decision. Too often believers mistake that for the gospel. They call people to repentance. They go, I just I, I told them the gospel. No, calling them to faith and repentance is not the gospel. It's a call to faith and repentance. The gospel is what Jesus has done, full stop. Because of that, we need to repent and believe. But those are two different things. The gospel is the finished work of Christ. The gospel is also not my testimony. You know, some people have really good testimonies because they're really gory and nasty and all that kind of stuff. I don't have one of those. I grew up in a Christian home. Godly parents went to church. Boring. Thanks be to God, it doesn't depend on my testimony. It depends on what Jesus has done. That's what's going to save people, not my testimony. Thanks be to God. It's not my works, no matter how you define works. No matter prayer I do, Bible reading, evangelism, whatever. It's not that. That's not the gospel. It's not even my faith. That's not the gospel. That's not what saves me. My faith lays hold of the salvation that is mine in Christ. But it's what he's done. That's the gospel. It's a message according to scripture about Jesus, which has to be received by faith and lived in an ongoing active way. But the gospel applies to missions and evangelism. The four points that Paul talks about here of first importance that is, the gospel is not the gospel if they are not there. They're not options. They are what make the gospel good news. So we can't do missions. We can't do evangelism if we're not talking about those things. The gospel is not about method. That's not really what's important. What's important is the content, that you point people to Jesus and his completed work. Having said that, we need to consider consider each individual with whom God has brought us into contact. Say, what does this person need to hear about Jesus? How can I communicate Christ to this individual person so that they understand who he is, what he's done? That takes a lot of prayer and a lot of courage. 
The gospel is the power of God to salvation. People are not going to be saved if they don't hear the gospel. So our evangelism has to be about what Jesus has done. Otherwise, people can't come to faith in Christ. Our evangelism and mission needs to be asking, how can we effectively communicate the content of the gospel, the finished work of Christ, to those who don't believe it? To be sure, we need to be engaged in acts of mercy on a global level, as well as here in our own city. But we must never confuse those acts of mercy with the gospel. Those acts of mercy must accomplish, accompany the gospel, but they are not the gospel itself. Those acts of mercy are not the power of God to salvation. Only the message of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, will save people. We need a minister here at St. Peter's. It's my prayer that he will be one who will lay before us, remind us again and again and again of the gospel, of what Christ has done. But also this has relevance to our salvation and our assurance. Many believers wrestle with assurance, and they seek all kinds of ways to gain assurance. Beloved, the gospel is our assurance. The objective, historical, witnessed fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in every detail. The reality of the finished work of Christ. My salvation and my assurance do not rest on what I do or what I feel or what I know. What, the, what church I attend, how often I pray, even how often I read my Bible. Rather, my salvation, my assurance rests solely on what Jesus Christ has done, what he's already done on my behalf. Further, the gospel provides us with the clearest expression of the faithfulness of God into which our faith can sink down roots and say, it's this God I want to trust. Because I can rely on him. He always does what he says. That's what we need when we need assurance. We need someone in whom we can trust. And Jesus says, trust me. I'm risen from the dead. I've done all that the Father has said I should do. And lastly, about the Christian life. Gospel is not just for evangelism, but it's for everyday life of us as believers. We're not just saved by grace and then left to work out the Christian life on our own. Sanctification as well as justification are by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. We're saved by the gospel, and the gospel must motivate and empower all that we do as believers. Our lives as Christians are a response and an outgrowth of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us as he remakes us. And we become, by his grace and by the indwelling of the Spirit, more and more conformed to his image as our Savior. But in closing, I want you to just stop and think. <clears throat> think about the plan of redemption and restoration for a few minutes. If you were God, how would you have planned restoration and redemption? Once mankind had fallen into sin... If you were the creator with unlimited power, power to speak all things into existence, what would you have done? Simply hit the restart button, reboot, 
obliterating mankind and starting all over? Would you have spoken a word of power which removed the effects of sin and restored mankind in a blaze of power and glory? Or would you have determined to send your only son to live a perfect life and die in the place of those who were in active rebellion against you? But those you determined to save. That's what our God did. But think about this course of what this course of action reveals about God that we would never have known about him otherwise. The gospel is a demonstration of the amazing grace of God, of his everlasting love for his people, loving us so much that he sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sin, that we could be restored to fellowship with him. Talk about love. The gospel should short-circuit our hearts and our minds as we contemplate its depths. The thought that the creator God would send his only son to die for my sin so that he might have restored fellowship with me and grant me life eternal, it should explode our hearts and our minds. The overflowing and thankfulness and joy Let me encourage you to look for ways to remind yourself and remind your fellow believers of the wonder of the gospel so that we might together give thanks and worship to the God of grace, our Savior. Amen. Amazing grace. Let's respond by singing this.